Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be here with you on Palm Sunday. If I don't know you, my name is Howard. On Palm Sunday, we celebrate and remember Jesus's entry into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And today, we are doing a slightly different approach to that in this message, but we want to welcome Jesus to come into our hearts in an even deeper way than before. So to start this message, uh, I've got a little game for you to play. I'm sorry for the people in the room, you can't do that unless you've got your phone and you can multitask and be on church online and uh, in the room at the same time. But I'm going to say the words to a song. Um, it's from, here's a clue, a musical, um, and you can type in online where it's from. Do you hear the people sing, singing a song of angry men? It is the music of a people who will not be slaves again. Somebody here was almost about to sing it uh, far better than I ever could. That, of course, is from the musical Les Miserables, and it is a song of revolution. It's a song about overturning evil and injustice and, and oppression. And so today on Palm Sunday, I want to invite you to join me on a greater crusade, to be strong and to stand with me for a revolution of our hearts, for transformation on the inside, for inner renewal that could well light the match for revival. Now, I, I long for revival. I long for what Mark says, the pastor cultural commentator would call renewal gone viral, for the, the new birth and coming alive of people in Christ and the church, exploding outwards, going further and further. I long for that. But as singer-songwriter Matt Redman put it, and he sung this, send revival, start with me. I've got to be honest Things need to change in me, with me, if this is going to happen, really with all of us. You see, we can get wonderfully saved by Jesus, but then we can live as slaves. We can not live out the fullness of the freedom that we've been given in Jesus Christ, or we can regress into slavery. We can become slaves to so many different things today. You can be a slave to consumerism. My life would just be better if I had Dot, dot, dot. You can be a slave to careerism. My life would be better if I just was, dot, dot, dot. Slaves to individualism. My life would be better if I just was in control and charge of everything and got my way, like all the time. Or you could be a slave to successism. I think that's, I don't know if I made up a word there. But slaves to a wrong definition of success. Slaves to our 
secular culture's prosperity gospel of progress, progress, progress. You must keep making progress. As it so often it sees suffering as failure and regress. And we can lose heart in such times. When we suffer, when other people suffer, we can feel like, God, where are you, God? What are you doing, God? I didn't sign up for this. Why are you allowing this to happen to me? This isn't, this isn't right. And that's the context that Paul is writing this prayer in, in Ephesians chapter 3. If you look at verse 13, and we're connected to that for this reason, he's going back, and he's saying in verse 13, I'm, I'm, I'm sharing this with you, that you would not lose heart on account of my suffering. I think he's launching into the prayer on that basis. He's beginning to pray that they would not lose heart, that God would enlarge their hearts through grief and suffering. He's saying, that's what's happening to me. I'm in prison as I'm writing. I'm in chains. But he's saying, I'm growing in Christ. I'm knowing him more intimately and more deeply. I'm beginning to comprehend more of what he endured on the cross for me as he suffered for me, as I suffer for him, that I can know him more. He's growing in Christ and he's saying, and the gospel is still going forth. It's unchained, though I am in chains. Through the very guards that I'm connected to here, right through them, the Praetorian guards, into the very palace of Rome. You can't chain the gospel. And he's saying, I am praying that you would know this experience too. And this is what God wants for all of us today. Paul is saying, Don't lose heart. God is saying to each of us, don't lose heart. And here's how not to lose heart, by praying the way that he prays. So there's four keys to how to pray for this revolution of the heart, for this transformation, for renewal to come that you wouldn't lose heart. And the first of those keys is the posture of prayer. And I want to ask you a question with that. Are you spiritually on your knees? Paul says, verse 14, For this reason, I bow my knees before. So much of our prayer is impotent. It lacks power because of our pride. Because if we're honest, we've got this inflated view of ourselves where we're basically saying, God, you should do this to me because I'm worth it. Because I'm a good person and I'm working hard and I deserve this or that from from you. Whereas the real position of power in prayer is one of humility and it is surrendering control. So much of life we want to fight God for control. We want to be in control. Ever since the Garden of Eden, when Satan tempts Adam and Eve, he's tempting them to eat of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, to grasp equality with God. And in that moment, they are choosing control over trust. They're choosing power over love. And we're the same ever since. The problem is we're not good at being in control. We're not good at it. We're not good at running the universe. If you hadn't noticed, we haven't done a very good job of that as humanity. We're destroying the very planet entrusted to our care. Now, if you need further proof of why we're not qualified for this job, I want to recommend that you go and watch Bruce Almighty. Now, obviously not tonight because you've got to watch Commission Global Prayer and that event. <laughs> but watch, watch Bruce Almighty. See, it kind of proves, proves the point. For me personally, I want to seize control by being really busy, 
by doing loads of stuff, lots of doing, to the point where I'm too busy even to pray. Because God, God, God needs me to do these things. God, the world needs me to do X and Y and all this other stuff. I, I'm too busy, God, God, to pray. But that lack of prayer declares, God, I don't need you. God, I, I've got it together. I, I, can, I can do this on my own. I, I don't need your help, actually, God. <laughs> don't you know? I, I've got some abilities of my own. I'll manage. I'll be all right. How arrogant is that? So the posture of prayer that we're taught here is kneeling. Kneeling prayer. Literally sitting on your doing so that God can go to work on your being. This is what happens when you kneel. Just to, to, to paint the really obvious picture. Sorry, David, making your life hard there. Um, it means that you're basically sitting on your doing. You are incapacitating your ability to do. You can't move when you're kneeling. Have you noticed that? You're fixed. You're limited. So that you have to be still and be with God. There's another thing about kneeling, though. It's not just about stopping and being still with God. It's about putting yourself at the mercy of another. You're before them. You're lowered down at their mercy. Now, this is what should really happen traditionally when you get engaged, when you're proposing. It's the tradition that a man should at least get down on one knee, maybe both knees, um, and he puts himself at the mercy of his wife's to-be answer in that moment. For me, this was an incredibly awkward moment because I had dressed up as Mr. Darcy from Pride and Prejudice. It's uh, it's a long story to that. It's one of Holly's kind of sort of heroes growing up, sort of story for the family there. And I was in the middle of the village square on a bridge over little river brook there with her family and loads of people. I didn't realize I'd interrupted the Good Friday celebration that they had come from the village parading around. There I was, and I was at her mercy saying, will you marry me? And she said, no. Very awkward moment. And then she said, yes, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, The point is this tradition has developed so that you would honor your spouse-to-be. It's about loving, respect, getting on your knees before them. How much more so should that be with God? That we should get on our knees before him, before his holy grandeur and his awesomeness and look up at his greatness. I really felt that the word I was underlined prophetically for me in my preparation here. I bow, Paul says, that no one can do this for you. You have to do it. You've got to choose it. It's a choice. I will bow. I choose. You've got to surrender. You've got to get on your knees. You've got to confess your delusions of grandeur and say, I'm not in control, God. I trust you. You're in control. And when you do, it will make a world of difference. So whether by devotion or desperation, get on your knees and look up. And I want to encourage you to do that physically. There was a time many decades ago, when we would have discouraged you of doing that because it would have been a ritual that you did and kind of lost its meaning. But now we don't do that. And we need some physicality because we're not compartmentalized beings. We're body, mind, and spirit 
beings. And when your body does something, it helps your mind and your spirit, the whole of the rest of you, to go with you in doing it. So there's a unity of being. And I would add to that, that at this particular time, where it's very hard to have physical reality to our expression of faith, because we can't meet in person in the way that we used to, that we've lost that physicality, let's not lose this one. Let's, let's enjoy that. Let's let it mean something to us to get on our knees again. That's the first point, the posture of prayer. The second point is the privilege of prayer. It's the privilege of prayer. And the question there is, do you really know who you get to talk with? Some of you may be aware that Holly and I have written a book on confessions called Spiritual Detox coming out in October this year. And when we'd finished the draft, we needed to send the the manuscript out to a number of people for feedback and hopefully for some encouraging endorsements that they might help that the message of the book go a bit further. And by God's providence, I had managed to get hold of the direct email access to a best-selling Christian author, like a a nearly world-renowned theological megabrain. Like, he's just a phenomenal guy. So we sent him the manuscript with an email, kind of half expecting it probably get lost in his inbox. Um, and we might just get a polite, no, thank you for you know, you're sending this, but I don't have time for the likes of you, that kind of thing. Um, and he did. He actually did reply, a very polite reply. And he, it, was, it was much more than that. He said, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. I'd love to do this, but I'm phenomenally busy. In five months' time, I have a window of a few weeks where I might be able to read your book. Um, so we were like, oh, thank you very much for at least, tr- at least trying. But then a few weeks later, he emailed back. And he said, I've read the book. I love the book. And here's some positive words because I'd love for this book to do better than that. Now, in that moment, like something of my introversion just, just was removed. And in the office at Westminster Chapel, I danced around the room like a kind of victory dance, shouting out. Thankfully, because of COVID, there's nobody around in our office floor. So there was no moment of sort of restraint or, or, or humiliation or anything like that. I was so excited. This affirmation from this theological mega brain, his opinion mattered so much to me. Why am I telling you that story It's so that you would go from the lesser of that story to the greater. Because you, through faith in Jesus Christ, don't just have direct email access to a theological mega brain. You've got something far, far, far greater than that. If you look back at verse 30, 12, sorry, of Ephesians chapter 3, it talks about boldness and confident access that you've been given to the very throne room of heaven itself to stand in the presence of God Almighty, the awesome creator of everything, and speak with him and, and meet with him. And his approval, his affirmation, his love for you, that should make you more than just want to dance around in your office where no one is looking. This is like the hallelujah moment of our lives, and it comes again and again and is available today, right now. Just look at how God is described in these verses. Firstly, he is the Father the definite article. He's the father of, of all fathers. He's the father. He's not some distant deity, arbitrary, uncaring, aloof. He's near. He's compassionate. He's, he's caring. He's the supersized, infinitely supersized, best version of any earthly dad that you could ever imagine. I know for some people, you haven't had that experience 
very tragically, you, you've grown up with a bad earthly dad, and sometimes that can make it hard to see, what is God like as a father? But you have something, actually. You have, um, I'm old enough to remember when we used to give our photographs um, to the chemists to get developed, you know, back in the days, little Kodak films that we would have, and you would get back something called the negatives. <laughs> and you'd get that, not just the color pictures, but the negatives, which would have the inverse of the picture. And in your experience of not having had that loving father, you've got the negative. You've got the reverse. You've got the kind of silhouetted outline of what you know was missing. That is precious. And then from that, you can start to imagine how God's going to fill that with himself beyond your wildest dreams. He is the father. Then it says that he is the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth gets its name. That means he's the source of all identity and meaning for everyone, for, for every single person on this planet, for everyone in this room, for everybody watching like that. You are seen, however small, however significant, however unimportant that you sometimes think that you are this good, good father. He sees you. He sees you. And then it says, he has riches of glory. You're coming into the presence of the one who has riches of, of glory. What is glory? Glory is this mysterious outshining of the beautiful, dazzlingly, richly bright character of God. It's his incredible love. It's his awesome mercy. It's his extraordinary justice that is shining out, of, coming out of his very being. It's his perfect, holy otherness that's truly triumphant. Peter, James, and John, they, they got a little tiny trailer of this at the Transfiguration. And for a moment that their eyes were opened to see Jesus more as he really is, dazzlingly bright and in glory. And he's rich with this. This goes back to the sort of the unsearchable riches of Christ, the unsearchable riches of God. I was struggling for an idea to come up to sort of help make sense of this. And the thought that dropped into my mind was Mary Poppins's handbag. <laughs> Uh, you may, may know she's got this magical handbag that she just keeps pulling more and more stuff out of it that doesn't make sense. You know, like full-on coat stands and all sorts of stuff, ornaments and objects that are just way bigger than the size of this handbag. And it just never stops. It keeps coming and coming and coming. That is what God's glory is like. It's, it's unlimited because it's his very nature. He is glory. He's the God of glory. He's the glorious God. And what does he do with this glory? He's generous with it. He wants people to see it, to experience it, to taste it, to feel what he's like, to know him. So you see his glory coming out, his, his glorious appearings, his glory and his miracles, his glory and his teaching. This is why the Apostle John was, we beheld his glory. Are you getting to understand now why we should be on our knees before him when we pray? It helps just to remind you of who he is and what he's like. And not only is it a privilege to come before him that we should rejoice about, but we should be trembling as well. There's a sense of awe and reverence. But what are you doing with that privilege? You've been given permission from God to come into his presence and, and talk with him. Are you? The third point is the petition of prayer. The petition of prayer. What are you really asking for? 
the iconic rock star Janis Joplin some years ago now. She sung this famously, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. A fascinating way to, to pray, isn't it? Because it speaks of this competitive comparison that's going on in society, doesn't it? Of horizontally, I just want that bit more, God, than what those other people have. Uh, and we end up praying these consumeristic shopping list-like prayer requests of, God, give me the date with the one. Give me that promotion at work. Give me that nicer home. Give me this lovely piece of tech and all of that stuff. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying that you should never pray for those things. I actually think there's grace in prayer and grace from God to pray those things. I'm saying that they really are not the priority, though. The priority Paul gives us in verse 16. And he is saying, pray for strength. Pray to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in your inner being. So there's a renewal going on in, in, inside you, in your inner being. You know, we waste so much time worrying about externals when God is far more interested in beautifying our internals. It's what you are on the inside that really matters. And this is why almost all revolutions of history have been ugly because of their bloodiness and ultimately self-defeating because they are not a revolution of the heart, the ultimate source of injustice in the world. And this is what, Paul, this is what God is getting at in this prayer. You, you need to be strengthened in power so that you can go deep in discipleship. Because inner transformation is tough. It's hard to go deep into those past hurts and to let his love break through. It's hard to stop stronghold, sinful practices of thinking and behaving in their tracks. It's hard to let go of bitterness when it's almost come to define you. You've embraced that victim identity. It's hard to do this deeper work of inner transformation. And so we need to be strengthened with power from the Holy Spirit. So whatever you're going through in life right now, I would say that the thing that you most need is strength from God to be made powerful inside so that you can grow through whatever you're going through. That's the point. And that leads us into this final point, the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. So that statements are always purpose statements to look for in Scripture. Very helpful. Eugene Peterson paraphrases this by saying that this prayer is all about welcoming Christ in. It's all about Christ coming to dwell, that you would, you would open up your life and say yes to him, let him come and live and open the door to your life. And that fits the original Greek meaning of these words. The word dwell, together with its prefix, literally means to settle down and make home within. So imagine your heart as a home. 
Is Jesus welcome? Is Jesus just a temporary guest? Is he a paying lodger? Or is he a family member with full access to wherever he wants to go? Has he got complete free reign, even over some of those idolatrous spaces or maybe cupboards or drawers that you don't want him to look in because they're, they're full of past hurts and pains and embarrassing things of, of, of your life? Is he lord over your living room, over your daily screen intake, what you're watching? Or would you be embarrassed if Jesus walked in on you and you were watching something that, that he, wouldn't, he wouldn't really approve of? Is he lord over your kitchen? Over your diet, over what you're eating, or have you got caught out with caught up with comfort eating and anorexia or bulimia because you, you want to be in control in a world that feels like it's completely outside of your control? Now, I am not asking these questions to condemn you or to try and get at you in a bad way. I'm asking them to help you to name what's going on, to own it. Because as you do that, you're bringing it to the light of God's presence so that he can come and transform it with his love. And until we do that as Christians, we'll find that we're very unstable because we lack ballast. In 1992, um, an expert yachtsman called Michael Plant went on another solo um, voyage across the North Atlantic Ocean. About 10 days later, he was found dead, and his boat had turtled. It was literally found upside down. Now, this shocked the sailing world because boats are designed that they always have more weight below them, below the waterline, so that they never will flip like that. If they flip, they'll immediately right themselves. That's so that a sailing boat can harness the power of the wind. Otherwise, it's just going to drift and not be able to move. Like that. So the Coyote, this, this state of the art boat that he had, had an 8,000 pound weight ballast bulb attached to the keel, the keel below the water, that fin, and then this ballast weight. But it had broken off. So the boat became unstable and it cost this man his life. Jesus today wants to put the ballast weight of his love into every part of you. Not just some parts of you, but into those parts particularly that you are afraid to trust him with, to let him go into, where you feel like, I can't, I need to have control over that. I'm not sure what will happen if that God is saying today, trust me, will you give it over to me? It'll be okay, I'll look after it. You can trust me because I love you. There's a stake in the ground of human history, Jesus would say, that demonstrates, that proves how much he loves you. He died for you to pay the penalty of sin for you so you could go free. He's saying, trust me with it. It'll be okay. Let me transform it with my love. Let the love of my ballast destroy your brokenness. Do you know, back in January, I had a, a season that culminated in a particular 24-hour period where I felt so angry, so frustrated, so anxious. But God was, God was at work in me, divine surgery, pulling circumstances and events together to squeeze out an idol from my heart. I would say I'm still in the recovery effects of that, that moment. See, I was doing a master's in theology at a very prestigious at university and part-time alongside everything else that I had going on. And I started to realize that I was actually doing this 
Because I wanted theological credibility. I wanted people to say, that's Howard. He's got a master's from there. Therefore, we will listen to what he says. That may sound crazy to you, but that's what I thought. Because he's got theological qualifications. That part of my life, the wall, the mantelpiece of certificates and qualifications wasn't surrendered over to God. And I heard God say to me, will you trust me with your reputation? Will you hand it over to me? In that moment, I felt flawed and and, and confused and really upset that I was having to let go of this thing. But I knew it was the right thing to do. And I gave it to God and I felt a deeper sense of peace than I have felt in a very long time. A liberty and a renewal taking place inside me that gives me a greater anointing and power for him to use me. As I'm speaking, I believe that there are people in this room and online who know these emotions well. Anger, frustration, anxiety. And God is at work in you. And it's to look at, okay, what's going on beneath in all these different layers? Can I get to the root of the issue so that his love can really come in at that point, not just at the surface level? So that his supernatural strength would help you go beyond superficial discipleship. To really be transformed. And this is God's way. Into the chaos of our emotions, he comes to bring order and light. That's how he reveals himself at the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, there is darkness and disorder over the world. And God comes and he says, let there be light. And he starts to form and to fill everything in the way that he wants. And that's what he wants to do with each of, each of us, each of you. To fill and to form you with his love. So there's a deep weightiness to you, to every part of you. So that when the wind and the storms of life come when suffering comes and things get really difficult you don't turtle and roll over no you're rooted and grounded in his love so that like a sailing boat actually the more pressure that comes against you and the stronger the winds flow actually you're going to travel so much faster because you've got the keel of his love the ballast weight of his love holding you in place and you can navigate through for his glory that's what Inner renewal is about, and that is the priority in prayer. We're praying for his kingdom to come in our hearts. That he would take up residence and fully rule every part of our lives. That then his kingdom would overflow out through our hearts. That we would begin a revolution. A revolution of the heart that transforms London forever. So I want to invite you today with a question. Will you join the revolution? Will you join the prayer revolution? It's going to start in a few moments, if it hasn't already begun, with a time of prayer, and then we're going to worship. And then it will continue throughout the rest of your day as you practice the presence of God, as you seek to pray throughout the day. It will continue before you go to bed, that you would then pray (laughs) before you go to bed. Great moment. Pray the examined prayer. If you don't know what that is, Google it. And then it starts the following morning, getting up early. It continues this revolution by getting up and praying again in the morning before God. Then it continues throughout that day and into TGI Monday at 12.12. And then into the rest of the week and into life groups and into Sunday morning's pre-service prayer. There is a revolution of prayer that I am inviting you to join us on for the renewal and transformation of our hearts. To say yes to Jesus on this Palm Sunday. You are welcome in. I don't know what that means and I may be a little bit scared. 
scared, but I trust you. Change me. Change me from the inside out for your glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you sent Jesus. And Lord, we ask you now, by the Spirit, to come into each of our hearts in a deeper and more profound way. Lord, help us to say yes to you right now. Help us to say yes, that you'd welcome you to come and dwell in our hearts. Give us strength with power, Lord, that you would enlarge us through the trials and the difficulties and the sufferings. Lord, that you would take things off us now. Issues of past hurts, Lord God, that we've hidden away from dealing with. Victimhood identities that we've held on to. Bitterness in our hearts where we've refused to forgive other people. Stronghold patterns of sinful thinking with immoral sexuality and pornography. Lord, we're asking you, God, would you come into all of these different parts of our hearts, Lord God, and take up residence and rule there with your love. Lord, that the light of your love would transform the darkness, that darkness cannot stand in your presence any longer. We're praying that that darkness in our hearts would be cast out. Lord, and there would be a liberty and a renewal and a freedom in the spirit that would come as you start to set us on fire for you, as you liberate us more and more, that we too, as we pray, 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 would be praying in for not just renewal, but for revival in London and all over the world. We ask, come, come now as we worship you. Come and continue this moment of liberation and freedom, I pray. Come and bring order to all that is disordered and dark with the light of your love, I ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.